This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Karen Jaffe. I'm a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and I will be your moderator for today's webinar. I'm a proud co-founder of InMotion, which is an amazing wellness center for people with Parkinson's disease and their families in Cleveland. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease uh, 14 years ago in 2007. Today, we are going to discuss some of the physical, emotional, and social changes that, may, that we may notice after living with Parkinson's disease for some time. We'll cover some tips for managing these changes and share with you some opportunities you can take that you could take in your journey with Parkinson's disease. This webinar is brought to you with support from Acadia, our pharmaceutical. While their support helps make this program possible, their donors do not influence webinar content, perspective, or panelist selection. So we've got a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Let me introduce our panelists. Dr. Veronica Bruno is a movement disorder specialist and clinical assistant professor of neurology at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. Her area of special interest is pain in Parkinson's disease, a symptom many of us experience. Dr. Vic Karuna Karuna is attending neurologist and chief of division of movement disorders at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Henry Hansman was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2009. He splits his time between New York City and New Haven, Connecticut, where he is a law professor at Yale University. And last but not least, writer, author, and PD research advocate my husband, Mark Jaffe. Mark is also the co-founder of Shaking with Laughter, a nonprofit dedicated to raising funds for Parkinson's research. So to start, to start our discussion um, about paving a path with Parkinson's disease, I'd like to turn to Henry and Mark. Having more than a decade under your belt as either a person with Parkinson's or a care partner, what does your, briefly, what does your journey look like? And has the passage of time changed your perspective on how you see any of your Parkinson's challenges? Henry, I'll start with you. Okay, thank you. Um, I was diagnosed, as you said, in 2009, um, 12 years ago. And at the for the first two years, it didn't affect my behavior very much at all, and my life very much. I continued being a full-time professor of Yale of law at Yale Law School. And um, I, the major change was in um, diet and exercise and sleep. I tried to get more sleep. I tried to get a lot more exercise. And, um, and I ate uh, a Mediterranean diet. My wife is uh, Italian and a spectacular cook, and that was pretty easy. So I, Yale, has a, Yale Law School has a retirement plan, which if you give up your tenure, your academic tenure by the age of 73, uh, allows you to teach a little part-time for, for the next few years. It's kind of a phased retirement program. And I opted for that at the age of 73, which was the latest date I could do that. Um, and, but it was time. And uh, it was clearly time I dropped my teaching load a bit and my writing commitments. Uh, everything slowed down. With Parkinson's, everything just turns out to be slower. Everything takes more time, um, not to mention exercise and sleep. So 
as it is this year, I will be teaching one seminar. The new normal course load would be two major, two large courses and one seminar. I am not teaching any of these big courses. I'm teaching uh, only a seminar. And, um, and I think that will be it for the rest of my life, as it were. Um, I will teach. I have a right to teach for the next 10 years one seminar a year and get paid for it um, rather generously. But I think I'm probably not going to take it. I'm going to probably, after this year or this year and another year, I will drop the even the seminar. So for the usual reasons, um, symptoms are getting more pronounced. And Henry, if you were to look back at when you first got diagnosed, do you think that there's you could have imagined where you would be today, twelve years later? No, I uh, got quite—I uh, was quite upset about it, as anybody would be when they get a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, especially if you know nothing about it. And I remember being quite quite afraid of it. Um, I didn't wouldn't tell anybody for the first two years. I didn't didn't let it out beyond family and friends, close friends, uh, which I think now was a, was a was a silly policy to have followed. I should have uh, let it out of the bag right away. I continued to live a relatively normal life, I would say, until three or four years ago. And um, and at that point, um, the symptoms started getting more bothersome and more and interfered more in, in ordinary teaching and, and research, for that matter. Um, so I can go into detail on those symptoms, but um, but let me just say they're the normal things. Um, dyskinesia set in about two years ago uh, in my right leg. Doesn't bother me much. I don't think about it very often, but um, but it's there. Um, you feel the mental, the cognitive effects. Um, terrible, terrible short-term memory. Mine, mine was bad to begin with, and now it's become really appalling. And um, um, difficulty okay, following, keeping well, your train of thought, and so forth. Okay. Well, that gives us an idea of how things have progressed for you, Mark. Having never actually directly asked you this, I'm going to carefully listen to your response. You're, you're right next to me, so it's hard not to. <laughs> um, well, I, I think uh, as, as a care partner, uh, you know, you're thrown into this whole new world upon diagnosis, which for us was about 14 years ago, and uh, you are trying trying to look ahead and, and figure out everything, and uh, um, it, it changes how it might change your relationship and uh, those things you don't know. After uh, living with it for a few years i think we've settled into uh kind of um what i like to think of as a, a batting coach is what i i've become um that's somebody who uh to use the sports uh, analogy uh you know when the hitter which would be you uh isn't hitting as well as they should you know it's kind of my job to keep an eye and go oh well maybe she's holding her hands down a little lower her elbow's not up or something like that and, um and help help my partner out um to uh from a different point of view so to, what am i batting at this day uh you're you're hitting uh in the round 300 so uh you're definitely all-star i don't know if you're hall of fame yet but uh keep, keep it going for a few more years okay so the, you know we the more that we know about pd it's clear that every person with parkinson has their own journey and the path they take is unique to themselves while each of us has a different array of not motor non-motor manifestations i'd like to ask our movement disorder panelists to talk about what a person with parkinson's might expect from a clinical perspective uh, years after your diagnosis, and is it typically different for a person who gets diagnosed with young onset PD versus someone who gets diagnosed much later in life? 
So um, Vic, let's start with talking about some motor system progression, and then Veronica, you can address the non-motor component. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I mean, at a high level, this this is a progressive disease. I think that it. Uh, I think we're increasingly recognizing that there are uh, definable subtypes in the disease. There are, and I'm, I'm going to be talking just about the motor symptoms. Veronica will chime in on the non-motor, but but even with the motor symptoms, you know, there are patients who have predominant tremor. It's asymmetric. It affects one side of their body. For example, there are other patients that will have more rigidity or imbalance uh, from the beginning, more bilateral disease. Um, and so it is important to recognize that everyone's journey is different, uh, and that, that is the motor journey and the response to the medications. Uh, and so that the, it's important to know that the relationship between patients and their physicians is very important, uh, a, good, a good line of communication. And, a, and there are going to be periods of trial and error uh, as, um, as, as patients and their physicians uh, get to learn uh, about each other and find you know, the best way to travel on this journey together. Uh, but in general, we expect the motor symptoms um, to worsen. And what, what does that mean? Um, in general terms, uh, that means um, that, uh, that the dopamine reserves that we see in the brain are depleted over time. So a, a patient might find, for example, that uh, in the beginning of the disease, uh, levodopa or a dopamine agonist is, 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 is very useful, but there's no clear uh, there's no clear on and off times uh, at the beginning. Um, uh, and then maybe the nighttime, there's no need for medication because there are reserves of dopamine uh, that we have. Uh, but that over time, uh, patients become more acutely aware of the need to have their medications. Uh, those medications may need to be taken at uh, increased frequency. We may need auxiliary medications that increase the length uh, of which dopamine, uh, you know, it, it hangs around in the brain and at synapses in the brain. Um, we might, might need to use combinations of medications. There may need to be more coverage at night. Uh, patients may feel uh, more dopamine deprived when they wake up in the morning after a long night of not having had medication. And, and so these are the kinds of changes qualitatively, and I'm happy to answer more uh, in more detail when we when we go through Q and A, uh, but these are the kinds of changes that we expect to see, uh, and I think that in general, uh, and, the, and and it's really hard to generalize because, as I say, uh, really every patient is different. But in general, um, patients who have early onset disease uh, from their twenties uh, to fifty, for example, um, those patients will uh, will uh, tend to um, tend to uh, especially if they respond well to medication, which is a very important data point, uh, tend to hold their course uh, for a lot longer period uh, than patients who uh, have the have the onset later in life. Those, those patients who uh, tend to get the disease later will progress more quickly, uh, both with respect to their motor symptoms and from motor to non-motor symptoms. But I, I preface uh, and I kind of underline all of this uh, by saying that, um, that, that, that this is an individual journey and, and that everyone is different. Well, and I think despite the fact that we know that it's individual, I meet a lot of people through um, the Wellness Center in Motion who talk about how when they first get diagnosed, they're, they're so fearful about what's gonna happen because they don't really know about Parkinson's disease. But if, if I knew what I know 
today, back then, I don't think I would, I think I would have been a different Parkinson's patient because I wouldn't have had this kind of worry because my disease has, fortunately for me, has been a slow progression. And I think that most people I see, they don't wake up and have a big change over the course of a day or two. Um, it's, it's a slowly progressive disease. So um, that's absolutely right. And then that's absolutely right. And, and a point worth underscoring. Uh, and, um, and, and a, and a disease for which there is so much and uh, available and increasingly becoming available, not just for the treatment of symptoms, but many, many different avenues of uh, approaches right. that we'll, we'll touch on later for disease modification. Right. So I, 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 I agree with you there. Thank you. Okay, Veronica, how about non-motor symptoms? Well, this is usually after a few years from the diagnosis is the time when we start noticing or seeing the non-motor symptoms emerging more clearly. And basically, when we talk about non-motor, we mean everything that happens in Parkinson's that is not related with movement, it's not stiffness, tremor, balance problems, but it's related with some other parts of the body or some other life spheres. So there are many non-motor symptoms, and you may feel uh, that you have some of them. Many patients experience some of them and not others. So it's not that every single patient with Parkinson's we have all the non-motor symptoms. But just to give you an idea, um, they can affect different spheres of life. For instance, cognition, like uh, memory problems, attention problems, as Henry was mentioning, feeling that the short-term memory is not working as well as before. Mood disorders like depression and anxiety are extremely common. And uh, also, for instance, sleep disturbances, like having very active um, dreams at night or not being able to sleep well or feeling extremely tired during the day and having ex what we call excessive daytime sleepiness. There are a different set of symptoms that we call autonomic symptoms. And when we say that word, basically we're speaking about issues with your bowels, like severe constipation, uh, issues with your bladder, like increased urinary frequency and having to go to the toilet many times during the day, but also at night. Uh, issues with your low, your blood pressure that may start to go down when you stand up and that may produce lightheadedness or dizziness, sexual dysfunction, uh, and additional symptoms such as fatigue or excessive sweating or pain, that is my area of expertise, uh, all those may, may be there before even the onset of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's, but it's usually after some years with the disease that patients become more aware that they become a problem or they start to affect quality of life. And there are two very important things uh, related to non-motor symptoms. The first is recognize them because many people don't think that those non-motor symptoms are related with Parkinson's, so they don't talk to the neurologist about them. So talk to your neurologist about every single symptom that you're experiencing and don't assume that it's not related with Parkinson's. The second and very important point is that many of them respond well to, well to different treatments. So maybe you assume that this is the way my disease behaves and there's no treatment or no solution, but may, we may have different strategies to tackle those non-motor symptoms, improving your quality of life significantly. So be aware of their existence, talk to your neurologist about them, and also know that there are many treatments that we can use, even 
when the disease is advanced and you have been living with Parkinson's for many years. As a final point related to non-motor symptoms, you may feel that they are not related with your motor part or your medications. But for instance, just to give you a, a short example, improving constipation will improve the way you absorb your medication and hopefully improve your own periods. Improving hyperactive bladder will reduce the times you need to go to the toilet at night and that will improve your sleep so you will feel less tired during the day. So again, recognizing them is very important, talking to your neurologist and knowing that there are solutions for many of them. Um, I find that, you know, as a Parkinson's advocate, I speak to a lot of people and they, uh, with Parkinson's and they, they often tell the stories about symptoms that they've had for many, many years before they got diagnosed, especially like for especially constipation, which is a problem I had for 20 years before my diagnosis. Why is yeah. it that non-motor symptoms proceed before motor symptoms? When we think of Parkinson's as a motor neuron disease, as motor disease, why would constipation, bladder, things like that, what's the, 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 the scientific rationale for that order of things to happen. We're trying to understand a little bit more about why that happens. We have a few theories. We know that for sure for non-motor symptoms, constipation, depression, and anxiety, loss of sense of smell, and um, sleep disorders like these very active dreams at night usually occur before the onset of motor. And that may be related with the fact that the disease starts in the areas of the brain or the gut where the alpha-synuclein is the Deposited. Uh, we are learning more and more about it. But uh, until recently, it was not that clear that that was part of the disease. But now we know that particularly when those symptoms combine, we have a strong suspicion that this may be Parkinson's. So it's very important to recognize those. Underscore that just for everyone um, to understand that, that, that there was this traditional view, especially because 50 years ago we, we saw that there was a responsiveness to levodopa. There was a traditional view that Parkinson's disease is a, a motor disorder. These are the classic, you know, the classic Parkinsonism is, is really a motor uh, a motor syndrome, but uh, it really is worth everyone understanding this is a multi-system disease that does affect many different neuronal populations in the in the in the body. There are clear pathologies there, uh, and that really reflects to these these multiple symptoms we're talking about. And just, sorry, Karen, just quickly to answer to your question of young onset Parkinson's disease, as Big was mentioning, uh, the disease has usually a slower progression for people with young onset Parkinson's, and something similar happens with the non-motor symptoms. There are some that may be more frequent in young onset Parkinson's, such as restless legs, um, but it's mostly the same that late onset Parkinson's, but with a little bit of a slower progression. So I'm getting a, a, a couple of questions about um, mild cognitive impairment. And um, let me just see if I can. There's two questions that I want to lump together here, Veronica. Um, one is, um, after the diagnosis with mild cognitive impairment, how long does it take? usually take for dementia to develop? And then the follow-up question that is, um, they want to know, is it true if we live long enough, we will get PD dementia? 
But can we talk a little bit about myocognitive impairment and dementia and Parkinson's disease? Sure. And those are great questions. And cognitive impairment and dementia are usually one of the biggest concerns for patients with Parkinson's as I can see it in my clinic. So the first thing to recognize is mild cognitive impairment is just a risk factor for dementia. It doesn't mean that every single patient that has mild cognitive impairment will develop dementia with the years. Uh, so it's very hard to predict. And again, the journey is different for everybody, but it's not 100% certainly that if you are diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, you will for, for certain like for saying to develop dementia in the future. If it happens, it's usually a slow progression. And we call dementia what happens when you are not dependent for independent for your activity, daily activities anymore. So it may take some years. And there are many things that we should and we can do uh, in order to reduce that speed and improve your cognitive status. So the first thing that I would always recommend is checking on medications, because many of the medications like amantadine or dopamine agonists that we use in Parkinson's can produce some cognitive issues with time. A second one that is extremely important is talk to your doctor and rule out the presence of depression, because depression can mimic mild cognitive impairment. Your attention is not great, and you cannot think properly or pay or remember things and maybe treating depression, the cognition will get better. The third and very important factor is reduce all the cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, and cholesterol, because those will add burden to the cognitive problems. And exercise has shown to delay the onset of dementia, and it's an important, an extremely important thing to add to your routine. So again, it's a risk factor. Doesn't mean that everybody will develop dementia, and there are different strategies that we can use to try to reduce that speed and make it less burdensome for you. Great. Do we, do we have an idea of what, per, what percentage of Parkinson's patients develop dementia? So it's um, the, the numbers are different, but if with the years, it's a, it's approximately forty to fifty percent of patients, but with many many years. Um, there is a study that shows that after three years of a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, only 20% of the patients, so to every 10 patients, will develop dementia. So again, it's not a straight line and it's not a short, rapid progression, usually if the diagnosis is Parkinson's disease dementia. It's different if it's a Lewy body dementia or a different diagnosis. I, I do want to um, mention one aspect um, here that, that everyone have, has different opinions about, uh, but that is that genetic stratification is becoming more and more a part of our practice. Uh, and that is because we are starting to see the advent of therapeutic trials that are, that are directed at patients who carry specific mutations. But along with this knowledge of genetics, we are understanding that patients who have different genes associated with Parkinson's uh, can have different manifestations or rates of progression. And so um, there are a number of studies that have identified uh, some clear genetic uh, predisposition factors that will lead to a faster rate uh, of motor to non-motor progression. So I, I want to uh, underscore that, that that's an important uh, uh, it's important from the perspective of therapeutics and clinical trials, but also uh, we are getting a little better every day at understanding prognosis based on genetics. Great, thanks. 
So this brings us to the very important topic of what can each of us do to smooth out the path in front of us. So while we don't have a cure yet, I do know this. We can improve the quality of our lives living with Parkinson's disease. It might take hard work, commitment, patience, support, and education, but we can impact our, our disease. Henry, I'd like to turn to you for a second. What lies in your arsenal of strategies to help with um, improving your day-to-day, -day, uh, feeling better, you know, feeling good with living with Parkinson's disease? Sure. I would say the number one item is uh, exercise. And um, from my uh, brief scanning of the literature when I was diagnosed and uh, from all the people told me, Exercise was the only thing then uh, available that um, might have a chance of slowing down the progression of the disease as opposed to just masking symptoms. So I went at it seriously, and I, um, uh, I had always kept in moderately decent physical shape through jogging and swimming and so forth. I did more of that. I did about an hour and a half a day um, of various forms of exercise, walking, running, um, swimming, uh, working with resistance uh, machines, uh, you name it. And, um, and who knows what effect that's had. Um, it makes me feel better anyway. And, um, right after I do it and, um, and I'm hopeful that it's, it's doing something. In any case, I'm, I'm doing it on the mere probability that seems substantial that, um, they're not substantial. It seems real that, um, that it will do some good. Um, other than that, I've uh, watched diet um, and weight, but I, that nothing nothing that that line has changed very much for me. And um, I would say exercise a little more sleep than I used to get before. Um, and um, you mentioned that before you um, you were hiding your Parkinson's disease. Um, have you connected with the Parkinson's community at this point? No. I wasn't. Um, my community of Parkinson's um, um, experts or, or friends is uh, confined to several people on the faculty at, at, at Yale University who also have Parkinson's. Hmm. I discovered it um, in, uh, in both cases just by looking at them. And uh, if you've got Parkinson's, you can see them. Um, and uh, the one of them had no no right hand no no hand tremor, but her legs gave her away. Um, so um, so that's been my little community. I would talk to them. One of them has passed away uh, owing to heart problems, unrelated apparently to, um, to Parkinson's. But, um, but I haven't set out a, a broader community. Um, most of my friends, all my friends, I think, know that I've got it. And um, they are maybe too timid to raise, the question, raise questions about it very often, but it isn't often a subject of conversation. And... Um, and so I haven't built a support group. Um, I confess that I agreed to participate in this session, um, partly thinking that maybe they'd put me in contact with some people that uh, I would find it helpful to talk with. Great. Well, I hope that happens. I'm the start of that, I guess. Um, Mark, do you have any advice on how, as a care partner, you can be an integral part to the success of my well-being? Well, I, I hope I do. <laughs> I've been going at it a while. I think it's... Um, uh, to, to go a bit off of Henry, I think the social aspect of it is, is very important and maintaining, uh, not just for the person with Parkinson's, but for the care partner, uh, maintaining a, a social life uh, and not just necessarily with people with Parkinson's, but uh, your friends from before. And um, uh, it, it really um, 
allows you to, I, I think it has so many benefits, uh, just uh, from a, a mental positive aspect. Um, and, and I think you're seeing that to a great degree uh, from the center in motion center that uh, is open here, which was initially done for exercise purposes, knowing the benefits of that. But we found that uh, having uh, the social life that uh, exists because of it has added so much to our lives. So sometimes there's a resistance as Parkinson's patients uh, in the beginning because they may be trying to hide it and later on because of the vagaries of uh, the physical aspects of it to not engage socially, but I think it's really important. And, and as a care partner, I've tried to encourage that. A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people aged 16 up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org PPMI to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org PPMI. And I'll pick up a little bit on, on Mark's comments within motion. Um, you know, when I got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, I really knew nothing about it. But and when I went out to look, and I also kept it secret for several years as a physician, I was worried about my, you know, how it would impact my career. But realizing that there were no resources really available, and I think that Parkinson's communities are bringing that to the forefront, that we need to have exercise, but we also need, you know, social context, we need education, we need um, support. And I think that um, the Parkinson's communities are slowly but surely, as I see through my advocacy work, that different communities are coming up and putting these together into one place where Parkinson's patients can build a community. So I think those are important changes that need to happen. Um, Veronica, as a, um, as a movement disorder specialist, I'm sure you see a wide range of clinical presentations. What advice do you give to uh, to a person who has been struggling with their disease after years being diagnosed? And here they are still struggling with that they haven't really settled into owning this diagnosis. Well, how do you how do you help them? Well, I usually try to to describe these the the pathway or the treatment or the management of the disease as a teamwork. So where we have a very important role because we can help with the medication, understanding how it works how to dose it, what are the side effects. But the patient itself or the people with Parkinson themselves have a huge responsibility and work to do um, basically getting connected with the disease. That is going to be a very slowly progressive disease in most of the cases. So it's going to be with them for the next 20, 30 years. And then it's very important to learn how to live with it and find a new normality that may not be exactly the same that you were experiencing before the diagnosis, but doesn't need to stop you living a very normal life. So all the strategies that are on the screen are extremely important, even sometimes more important than medication. As Mark was mentioning, social interactions, try to, to stay active. Recognize the limitations so you don't feel upset or embarrassed if something doesn't work exactly as it used to work, but try not to stop doing what you love because that is extremely important for dopamine, for the brain, uh, and for moving and taking power of your Parkinson's disease and being the one that is in charge of your Parkinson's disease. And again, recognize the non-motor symptoms, talk to your neurologist about them, um, 
and also planning ahead. I think that's a very important aspect because learning, talking to other patients, knowing how the pathway may be, will help you decide what you want to do and how you want to live your life. And that's, I find it's extremely important. In the particular case of pain, uh, that is a very important aspect. I just want to mention a few words. Um, Sometimes because patients with Parkinson's can be in their 70s, 80s, uh, everybody thinks that all pain is osteoarthritis, and it may limit your activities, may limit your exercise. Many patients say, I would love to exercise, but I have pain. So learn that Parkinson's disease can hurt, and talk to your doctor because we may have strategies in terms of adjusting medications, adding new medications, manage painkillers that may help you gain that you uh, reduce the pain so you can feel better and you can exercise more um, and, and get more engaged with your exercise. I think that all those things that you say are so important. I feel that as a Parkinson's advocate, I try to talk to patients about self-advocacy, that they need to own their disease and control it. But we're also talking about a group of people who are 60, 70, 80. It's hard to make an old dog learn a new trick. You know, it's I, we can say eat healthy, and then, or exercise, but trying to get that to happen um, is difficult. But I do want to send the message that these things do make a difference um, and they, in your quality of life. And if you're sitting at home and you're not moving, you're going to find that you have more pain, more, um, you know, more, more troubles. Um, some of this is all masked, though, by something called apathy. And, and that's a hard one. I mean, that's a hard one to know exactly what causing it or whether it's part of, part of the disease or whether there's another reason for it. But apathy is a big reason that people don't do follow through with uh, with some of these um, suggestions. Would you agree? Yeah, and exactly. Apathy is one of the symptoms that challenges us the most because we don't know how it happens. It can or not happen. It can happen at any point during the course of the disease. And we don't have a very good approach to it. We don't have a particular mm -hmm. treatment. Mm -hmm. I would say my suggestion to my patients when they I notice or they notice that they are feeling less engaged with things, not enjoying things as usual, they don't want, don't feel like going out, don't feel like seeing family or friends, is try to find the support of someone like Mark, like a care partner, like a friend, like a Parkinson's buddy, someone that can tell you, I know that you don't feel like going out, but we're going to do it anyway. And after that, you're gonna feel much better. And everybody most of the people confirm that after they pass that barrier, even if they feel that they don't want to do something, they feel much better after and they say, yeah, you are right. You know, I I enjoy this so much and it really helped me feel much better. Underscore one aspect of that, and that is that there are just so many great group programs that are out there increasing all the time at the community level. And I found that my patients in general really love that, you know, when they're, when they're part of a program and that, that, that collective energy is really important. Right, and, and a lot of people are worried about going to a group because they're worried that they're gonna see somebody who's more advanced than themselves, but it's not really, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, most people look well who are out and about and they, they feel well, and I think it's very encouraging to see people who have been living with the disease for many, many years. Um, Vic, how much impact can a medication adjustment have in the management of people's changing symptoms? And in, well, the, in that respect, do you have a comment that you can make about 
delay in using carbidopa levodopa because of worry about dyskinesia? Yeah, I'm so, so glad you brought up that question. Um, so I think medication dosage, as I mentioned right at the beginning, working closely with your physician adjustments, um, these are really important. It's really important to know that something that works at one period of time in a year or two um, may not be the most effective strategy for you. This is, this is a moving target and it's constantly evolving. So I would say, um, I would say that this dialogue is really important. Keeping logs of your symptoms, actually getting some quantitative data, it can really help your um, your physician work with you as a team. Increasingly, we're going to see biometrics out there in the community, the use of cell phones so that we can track our movements in an objective way. And this kind of data can be helpful for your physician. So adjusting medications, changing medications, in general, thinking about changing a dosage or changing a frequency. These are the things that we need to think about and sometimes changing a formulation. At some point, at some point, you might need to switch from a medication that's an immediate release to a controlled release or a combination of an immediate and controlled release. These are all things um, that, that you should be considering um, as, as this evolves. Uh, and finally, this really critical question that you raise of 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 being sparing of levodopa, I, I think that you know I think that um, the long term data would suggest uh, that that really our patients should do everything they can to treat their symptoms and improve their quality of life. Um, the concept that if you try to spare yourself from levodopa, you will somehow have a better disease outcome or be able to use it for longer later uh, has generally not been borne out in any long-term studies. And in fact, some of the most interesting studies have related to populations such as in Africa, uh, where patients have not had exposure to levodopa for a long time in their illness uh, and then have had exposure. And it turns out that the effects like dyskinesias and other things are really no different in patients that are exposed long-term to levodopa or not. And so while there are different there are different pieces of data behind this. In general, um, my philosophy certainly, and I think this is philosophy of the field now, is to treat our patients most effectively. Uh, and, if, and, if, and if medicines are uh, not as effective as levodopa, there's no compelling reason uh, to spare oneself from using levodopa. Treat yourself. Um, these are not altering the course of the disease one way or another is our uh, consensus right now. Great, thanks. Well, regardless of how many years I've had Parkinson's disease, one of the most pressing issues for me is what is happening with PD research that is helping us to manage the symptoms of Parkinson's, but is also getting us closer to a cure. Veronica, let's start with some trials focusing on improving life with PD. Yes, and uh, this is a very important part. I know that you're all waiting for Vic to tell us about stem cells or disease-modifier treatments, but it happens to patients that have some years with the disease that they sometimes are frustrated because after so many years, I cannot be part of the biomarkers or the early diagnosis trials. So what can I do for research? There's no place for me. And that's not true because there are many different uh, trials going on right now trying to improve your quality of life. So trials that are focusing on improving the levodopa duration, reduce these kinesias, trials that focus on new medications to make the on periods last longer, uh, reducing the fluctuations, the ups and downs that you may experience during the day. There are new trials also 
improving the use of intestinal duodenal or duodenal uh, levodopa. So in terms of the motor symptoms, there are many things going on trying to, until we get a cure, making the management of your symptoms and your medications much better. But there are also many trials trying to tackle those non-motor symptoms that I mentioned before. So there are a few new compounds that have been tested in places like London, Ontario, and Canada, or California, uh, searching for treatments for dementia and Parkinson's. Like these are experimental, but they're already been trying in, in, in humans. There are also some trials trying to use medications that have been uh, shown to delay the onset of dementia in Alzheimer's in Parkinson's disease. And there are different trials trying to find mood uh, solutions for mood disorders, pain. Myself, I have many trials uh, treating, uh, trying to treat pain in different ways. Um, and what I found it's very exciting is that now we are not focused on medications all the time, but there are now trials to show what we just mentioned, that there is evidence for exercise, for acupuncture, for probiotics, for Mediterranean diet. We're trying to understand the role of cannabis because this is a very um, important topic these days. Uh, so there are a very long list of trials that you can find using the FOX trial finder uh, tool or the clinical trials that gov website if you want to ask someone in your family to help explore those um, resources. Um, but the most important thing is talk to your doctor and ask. And don't feel that because you have had 10 years of disease, you are not a good candidate for research anymore. Uh, we really need you. We cannot find treatments or solutions without you. So feel uh, feel free to contact your, your community and ask, because there may be a trial that you may benefit from, but also help us understand all these symptoms a little bit better. Thanks. Okay, Vic, everybody's asking me questions about this. Uh, can you talk about your work uh, using stem cells um, and other disease modifying approaches to slow disease. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, you know, rather than focus on my work, maybe I'm just going to give some pointers about how to think about what's out there in the field right now. Uh, I can answer any more detailed um, questions. So I'm going to put disease-modifying therapies in their first big category. And what do we mean by that? We've talked about uh, Parkinson's being a multi-system disease. Um, a critical to the disease is a protein alpha-synuclein, which many of you will have heard of. Uh, this is the protein that uh, aggregates uh, in many different cell types of the brain, not just dopamine neurons, but cortical neurons that relates to cognitive dysfunction, autonomic neurons relating to bowel, bladder, sexual dysfunction, and so forth. Um, this protein is, is, is very, very involved in the disease. Um, and so if we're thinking about disease modification, we're, we're basically saying, uh, can we intervene in a way that alters the outcome progression rate, um, this transition from motor to non-motor symptoms uh, in this multi-system disease? And I'm going to describe three categories. Um, for simplicity. The first is that a small number of patients right now have well-defined genetic uh, mutations that relate to their disease. Uh, patients who, for example, uh, hold uh, uh, carry mu mutations in a GBA or LRRK2, also known as LERP2. There are active trials that are specifically being designed for patients with Parkinson's who carry uh, changes in these genes. So that's one category. 
genetic related. The second big category relates to, uh, to, to therapeutics that are really directed at alpha-synuclein themselves. And I'm going to talk really about a couple of approaches. The first major approach is decreasing alpha-synuclein. Uh, and so antisense oligonucleotides are a genetic approach to decrease alpha-synuclein. There are small molecule drugs that are being tried to decrease alpha-synuclein. Um, there are antibodies that are being tried to, let's say, soak up alpha-synuclein and reduce its levels. Uh, and then there are companies that are looking at the downstream, what happens after alpha-synuclein clumps up in, in neurons, um, what the downstream effects of that are, and using either molecules or genetic therapies to reverse that. So these are different ways of thinking about alpha-synuclein. So genetics was the first bucket. Alpha-synuclein directed is the second bucket. And then I'm going to broadly talk about um, other types of therapies that look at the reaction of the brain or the metabolic state of the brain. Um, and, and there are a number of different types of medications directed at metabolic state, um, uh, insulin-related signaling, for example, uh, that, that are, that are uh, being advanced to trial. Uh, we're learning a lot more about the interaction inflammation and uh, which is the response in the brain and the microbiome for example so this is a very active area of, of research could we change something in the gut of parkinson's patients to alter the disease course in the brain so these are this is not an exhaustive list but this is just a way for you to think about classifying them uh, and finally we come to um, you know to stem cell transplantation therapy so there are two different ways people think of stem cells so, for example, in my lab, I generate human stem cells from my patients in order to develop an understanding of the patient's disease and to develop drugs and other therapies in the dish when I make the stem cells or even mini brains now from our patients. But other advances relate to transplanting stem cells back in the brain. And I think this is uh, an active, uh, a lot of you will have active questions about this because we know that different companies now and academic groups around the world are advancing these types of stem cell therapies. I'm happy to answer questions in detail about them. They are all a little different. Uh, some trials uh, seek to make a off-the-shelf stem cell product that is transplanted uh, into the patient. Other smaller scale efforts, uh, actually uh, using a skin biopsy, for example, can make a patient's own stem cells from themselves. These are the kinds of techniques I use in my lab all the time, and then make their dopamine neurons and transplant those back. So these are called allogeneic, either off the shelf or autologous from oneself stem cell therapies. And so these are um, the different types of approaches that are out there. And whether or not stem cell therapies are disease modifying is still a very open question. In general, um, the field probably considers them uh, as a way to replace dopamine in a physiologic way, uh, maybe a little more naturally than using deep brain stimulation to alter circuits. But just like deep brain stimulation, not obviously expected to change the course of the disease. That's a complex question, but generally we put stem cells in the symptomatic therapy group and not disease modifying, but really time will tell. We have a lot to learn about those kinds of therapies. Happy to answer any more detailed questions. Well, boy, it sounds like the pipeline, the research pipeline for Parkinson's is pretty robust. 
Um, in the interest yes. of time, I'm going to direct you in terms of DBS that you see on the slide there to a recent webinar in uh, Fox Foundation Guide that details the latest research in DBS. I'll just make one more minor point on DBS that could be important for people to hear, that DBS is really a therapy for patients who respond to dopamine. They may have side effects from dopamine, but DBS will not is not considered um, you know, for patients who really aren't good responders to dopamine. That's one point I just want to make there. Thanks, Dick. Thanks. So this discussion about research is a great segue for me to talk a bit about the Foundation's landmark study, PPMI, and its new recruiting efforts. The Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, also known as PPMI, is the study that could change everything about how Parkinson's is diagnosed, managed, and treated. Right now, the study needs parents, brothers and sisters, adult children of people with Parkinson's to take a short survey. You can even get started right now by clicking the Get Started tab in the Take Action box on your screen. The study is also recruiting people diagnosed with Parkinson's in the last two years who are not taking medications yet. You can learn about the PPMI by clicking the link in the resource list and help spread the word about the PPMI. So the link to share is michaeljfox.org forward slash PPMI. That's michaeljfox.org forward slash PPMI. So Mark, I'm going to have you kick this segment, segment off and hit because of your recent participation in the PPMI and how that um, helping um, not only me, but the Parkinson's community abroad. Well, as a care partner, uh, one of the things that uh, is, is so frustrating is that you can't feel like you can't do anything for your partner uh, in terms of making the disease go away. Um, but there is, in a way, uh, I realized after uh, we were in it for a while, and that is participating in, in clinical trials. And uh, I was fortunate that uh when you know, the time was right for for us and, and i was uh, available but the ppmi had just opened up and uh, was looking for not just people with parkinson's but control people which they are again and uh, so i i signed up and uh it's been uh very helpful to me to know that i'm benefiting the parkinson's community and and you personally uh hopefully one day to find a cure from this. And it's the, the study has been amazing. Uh, I don't know how many millions of downloads there have been of all the data and, and use of all the, uh, uh, the vitals that people have uh, given, but uh, it's been a lot and it's uh, done amazing things to this point. I've been in it for about seven years and they're now opening it up again to have a whole new uh, uh, consort of, of people who are participating. And uh, just being a part of something that hopefully one day will, will lead us to a cure is, uh, is very rewarding. And we all appreciate it. Um, so um, did any of our other panelists, Henry, Vic, Veronica, have any um, words of wisdom for the Parkinson's community who are watching this today and how they can get involved to um, make a difference um, in, in how Parkinson's disease is treated and managed and, and and dealt with. I, just, I confess sorry. I have no nothing special to add at this point. I haven't participated in any of the studies, largely owing to time and location problems. I commute back and forth between New York and New Haven, but um, but uh, well, my life is now open up enough so that I can freely do it, and I'm eager to participate if I can. Well, there's a there's a great study that I'd like to tell people about. It's an online study that the Fox Foundation does called Fox Insight, and it is collecting information from people with Parkinson's as well as care partners regarding living with Parkinson's disease. 
You don't have to leave your home. It's done right on the computer. Quarterly, they send you uh, a series of questions that you answer, and they're collecting this data from tens of thousands of Parkinson's patients in order to direct um, their research efforts um, in, in, um, uh, in Natalie in the lab and in the clinic. And what are, it's, it's our opportunity to share with us, to share with the Fox Foundation and researchers what it's like living with Parkinson's disease and what can they do to make our, you know, what should they be looking at in terms of um, research that can improve our situation. So um, that's Fox Insight. And anybody can sign up for that. Like I said, you don't have to leave your home. It's just done quarterly in the computer. And that, that's also for people without Parkinson's as well. Right. I think it's an important point uh, to remark that we are moving through something that is called patient-oriented outcomes in research. So we want your opinion, we want your feedback, we want to know what you think is more important, where should we focus, uh, what are the areas that you found are more challenging. So if you stay at home and you, you don't get in contact with the community, it's very hard for us to know. But if you approach us, we will be happy to learn more. Uh, the, the world community, the global community, we're all very open to learn more from you so we can find the cure, but also the best way to manage Parkinson's altogether. Yeah. Okay. From the research perspective, I would just add that um, we have so many, uh, you know, as you said, the pipeline is so strong, but there is a huge challenge in translating great insights from the lab into an effective clinical trial. This is a really major challenge. We don't um, fully understand how to match a patient to the right treatment. You know, we're, we're in our infancy of understanding that. And uh, efforts like the PPMI and other efforts that track patients longitudinally over time are so important for us to be able to diagnose the disease early or when it's, if it's during the course, to, to understand how we can classify patients and match them more appropriately for the right kind of therapeutic trial. So we won't be able to do that without gaining uh, the kind of information that the PPMI study is really trying to elicit. And I can tell you, uh, I use the PPMI study daily. It's a, it's a very, very well-run well study. And for researchers like me, it's been very pivotal uh, to design hypotheses and then test them in the lab. Thank you, I agree. Well, uh, we're uh, again, I want to acknowledge that this webinar is brought to you with the support of Akita Pharmaceuticals. We have received a lot of questions, so why don't we, you can still submit them. So let me start um, reviewing some of the questions that we have before we close up here. Uh, some questions on genetics. Do I need to get tested after diagnosis? Can family members get tested? Uh, what can it tell me? Does it impact treatment? Um, that's a big question. Um, if somebody wants to give a succinct answer to that question um, about genetics and who, who should be who should be tested? Yes, I think in general we test patients um, these days who have uh, strong family histories or early onset cases. The bottom line is genetic testing is much more widely available, especially in major uh, research centers, uh, and is much more covered now uh, by Medicare and insurance companies. So it's much easier to obtain, uh, and there are there are good studies uh, that allow it also to completely free testing. So talk to your doctor about that. Veronica, somebody's asking, are there recommended drugs to treat mild cognitive impairment? Yeah, so the truth is that 
the trials that have tried different medications for mild cognitive impairment in Parkinson's didn't show significant benefit. There are some drugs that we can use when there is a diagnosis of dementia, but not for mild cognitive impairment in terms of medication. However, we know again that treating mood disorders that may be masking or worsening mild cognitive impairment reduce some of the Parkinson's medications such as dopamine agonists or amantadine and exercising as well as controlling the risk factors, the cardiovascular risk factors as hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, all those can help reduce the progression of mild cognitive impairment to dementia. And do either one of you want to answer the question, how close are we to a cure? <laughs> I'm not the guy on this. Closer every day. Closer every day. Um, we, we, it's a robust pipeline. Please participate. Uh, this is a partnership between researchers, clinicians, and patients, uh, and we need your involvement. Uh, it's so exciting what's out there right now, but we're going to need to work as a team. We are facing a, an extremely exciting time uh, in terms of new mechanisms of potential therapies. So hopefully, for sure, we're much closer than 20 years ago, and we have some of the brightest brains in the world thinking of a cure for Parkinson's. So hopefully, it's much closer than what we think. Well, it depends on how you define a cure. If somebody told me that they could stop my Parkinson's where it was, and that, and, but not go back to normal, I would consider that a cure. And I think many people do think that that would be a cure to be able to um, just stop the Parkinson's where it was at. You know, I think that you were, you were both young, and so you probably weren't, when you got into medicine and into neurology, didn't have to see what how it used to be. But 30 years ago, I think the life with Parkinson's is very different than it is today. Um, and I, I've met lots of people with Parkinson's disease, and they're living well, and they're working hard at living well and being self-advocates and um, really... Make, take away a lot of the stigma that's associated with Parkinson's disease um, and um, working with it and, and continuing to be well with and living well with Parkinson's disease. And sorry, as a short comment, we have witnessed this with other diseases like multiple sclerosis when in five years, many therapies, uh, modified therapies for the disease appear and the management change completely. So there is a lot of hope out there and a lot of science going on. So... Let's keep working to reach that point together. And, and the time at which a good idea can get into the clinic is becoming shorter and shorter. Of course, it's still team effort, but it used to be 10 or 12 years before something in the lab could, could get out into clinical trial. That is reduced considerably now, both at the regulatory level and because of the pace of science. We're seeing early ideas getting out into the clinic within a few years for the first time ever. So I think these are all really promising signs. Well, and it must be also a sign that we have more people who are willing to participate in research. Um, I know that 80% um, of clinical trials uh, get slowed down because of poor enrollment, and 30% get stopped because there's no, there's not a single enroll. They don't have enough enrollees to keep going. So there's a lot of research that's probably worthwhile that's sitting on a shelf waiting for somebody to participate um, in it. And so it's important that we um, that we take that on as ourselves. We've only gotten to where we are in Parkinson's disease today because of people before us who are willing to do to do the research um, and to be participating in, in research. So I, I encourage people, it's a very, uh, not only is it important, but it makes you feel good because you really feel like you're you're helping the Parkinson's community in large and you are. Um, so Fox Trial Finder, as they mentioned earlier, is a place to find clinical trials that are related to Parkinson's disease. 
and um, and you can just go to the Michael J. Fox Foundation website to find both Fox Trial Finder and Fox Insight. And those are two good ways for you to help um, advance this, uh, the, the care that the care that we're getting uh, right now. So, okay. Well, I think we are um, close to out of time. I wanted to thank my panelists for um, for participating in this discussion. I think uh, there's probably a lot of questions that can be still answered. Um, and I think that uh, the Fox Foundation will you know, look over your questions that you submitted um, and hopefully we can find a way to answer those questions for you. Uh, but thank you all for joining us. And um, I am going to end here and wish you all a great day. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.